Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and I am once again joined my, by my very good buddy, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. I'm having the weirdest sense of deja vu, but hello. Yeah, it's just because it's, it's like the paranoia one. Just because you're having a sense of deja vu doesn't mean you haven't done this before. <laughs> so, How's it going, man? It's going pretty good. How you doing? Doing all right. And, Got uh, me some funny books. Yeah, well, we'll get to those in a minute. I just wanted to mention that Dr. Bill is once again on assignment. And assignment, think of what the first three letters of assignment are. And that's what Bill is on. <laughs> he's on his ass. Because he's lazy. He's, he's lazy. He <laughs> wants to go to work instead of podcast. <laughs> oh, priorities, poor, man. Priorities. Yeah, poor, poor Bill. So he's not going to be able to join us today. But uh, you got any comic news? I do. I, I got a recent... Oh, wait, is the phone ringing? Yeah, it looks like we got a call coming in, which is really weird. Hello? 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 Yeah, it's Sam! Sam, it's me! No, Steve! Th- th- there's no Sam here. No, Sam, it's me! I need you to do something for me! Sir? You know... There's no, no, no Sam here. It's, no, it's Steve! Who, who are you looking for? I'm looking for Sam! It's Sam, it's me, Steve! Steve, Steve who? Cap! Cap, Steve Rogers. Oh, it's old need... Cap. What? No. Well, I guess. Hey, I, I need you to look something up for me. Okay. What do you need? Well, you know that shield I gave you. The one you gave you know, to the... Sam, yeah. Yeah. No, to you, Sam. You're Sam. I'm Steve. Yeah, well, you around... give one to Bucky. Oh, it's Bucky! Oh my God! I thought you were dead again. Holy Jesus. No, I said, why didn't you give one to Bucky? Bucky, uh, what, um, I'm old? Yeah, that's it. Anyway, <laughs> Sam, I need you to get me something off of my shield. There's what a number you... on the back. It's okay. my pin for the bank. Peggy doesn't know about it. I need some money for bingo. I think, t- can you read the pin number for me? Sure, it's, it's B-O-R-N, B-O-R-N, four, four, J-U-L-Y. J- really not the most clever pin I've ever that's heard. That's a long pin number. I thought it was 1770. Oh, it's 1776. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. how could I forget that? Is I'm, that when you were you born? Know, I don't know when I was born. I don't remember. I was frozen for 70 years. What's wrong with you? And I went back in time. I'm forward in time. I'm so confused. I'm old Cap. All right. I think, anyway. Cap, I think you might need to get home. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I do have, uh, you know, if I don't, Peggy's going to think I was stooping her niece, which I did. But a big. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Genesis! Oh, what's in the box? 
Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. So, we're happy that we had Cap available for a few minutes, but uh, actually, despite what we thought, Bill is going to be available for about, I don't know, five minutes or so. Uh, Bill, you there? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> So you you can't hang out for the book though, huh? No, that's because you don't like our listeners. I never said that. He doesn't like us. You will that. He doesn't like me. Oh wait, that's Rocky Horror Picture Show. He but yeah, like me. so so actually, uh, I know you got to go, but Scott had some comic story he wanted to tell you. Well, you know, the listeners, I don't know whether they will have heard it yet or not. Um, it all depends on when I can get it done, but. A while ago, uh, Bill and I uh, got together over uh, near his neck of the woods, and we went comic shop hunting. And one of the shops that uh, Bill took me to while we were together that day, Bill, I don't know if you remember this or not, but that that shop where we walked in and they they had all the books on like a like an old fashioned like magazine rack behind the counter, and they had oh, like yeah, the yeah, Star yeah, Wars yeah. weeklies and st- you know the the yeah, treasuries and everything. The comic club, I think, in Brandon, I think. Something like that, or the yeah. Comic spot, I don't know if you remember, other. but yeah, yeah, there was. I a Star had the, Wars... the lady behind the counter. She she got you know she fetched one of the books down off the wall for me because I was just curious how much it cost, and it was uh, Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes, you know, the old seventies uh, series, number two hundred six, which was one of the few issues that I lacked. Do you remember what it cost? What she said the, the price was on it? No, um, was I supposed to? <laughs> Is this an integral no, part of the story? Well, no, no, it's not. I don't I, remember I it being really highly expensive, but I don't remember it being cheap either. Was it like ten bucks? Yeah, that. Yeah, it was something like that. I want to say like ten, twelve dollars, something like yeah. that. It was. It was enough to where I was like, eh, I don't think so. So the other day, I just happened to see this lot pop up on eBay. And it was really it was it was badly listed, which is sometimes can be a good thing, you know, if they're just not listed very well. So it was according to the picture that went with it, it was for eight issues of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, but the description only gave the numbers, you know, the header on it and and the uh, the little write up that he had only listed seven issues. But it was uh, it was ninety nine cents was the starting price on it, and then the shipping was I was like five dollars and change. So I really only needed one issue. I needed that one issue, two oh six, and all the other issues I already have. So I said I'm going to keep an eye on this thing. And days go by, and days go by, and nobody bids on it. So I, finally, I was like, oh screw it, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll bid on it. You know, if I if I win it for a buck, then fine. You know, it's six dollars and change altogether, which is still a lot cheaper, you know, than I would have paid for that one issue alone. The other issues, I'll just turn around and sell them. Well, damn if I didn't win it for a buck. So, you know, six dollars yeah. and some change total. I ended up getting that issue that I needed to fill a hole, which is two oh six, 
And then the other issues that are in there are uh, number 200, 204, 207, 208, 218, 221, and 225. So together with uh, a little lot of Superboys that I already have that uh, I intend to get up on eBay at some point when I get off my lazy ass and do it, I've got quite the little stack of uh, Superboys here that uh, need to find a home. So I know I read the numbers off on that other stack in a prior episode, so... If anybody wants to try to catch me before uh, I slap them up on eBay and work a little deal, I mean, I'll cut you a good deal on them. I'd, I'd just like to get my money back on these sorts of things. But I thought that was pretty cool that I ended up getting that issue plus seven other issues to resell for about half the price, roughly, of what that issue was up on the wall at that one comic shop. So I thought that was pretty cool. Stay in nice condition? Eh, they're they're a little rough. I'll be honest with you. They're not as those ones I got before that other lot that I got. They were in really sweet condition. These, I mean, they're well loved. I mean, they're they're a little beat up, but I mean, you know, they're they're you know they're perfectly serviceable to you know fill a hole or whatever. Euphemism. There was so many <laughs> euphemisms that I was just gonna let that go. Serviceable. <laughs> well loved, <laughs> fill a hole. Like, oh my God! You there know, you are, are are the pages stuck together? I mean, come on already. I'm a horrible <laughs> person. Yes, you and, are. And with that, I will bid you, gentlemen, adieu right, as I head off. Because Bill has to go on assignment. But a bing. Only Cap is from Brooklyn, according to the uh, MCU, at least. Yeah, I believe he was from the Bronx in the original comics. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. But in in, in, right. in the well, MCU, he's from Brooklyn, so bada bing. You guys have fun. I'll catch you next time. Of course we'll have fun. All right. I'll see you. All right, buddy. Later, right. man. Bye. So uh, I guess picking it up from there, we're going to probably have a fairly short show today because I think we're only covering one book. And that would be yep. my book that's one of Scott's all-time favorites. Superman, <laughs> Batman, number eight, from May of 2004, which uh, hit the newsstands on March 24th, 2004, if they actually went on newsstands. Had a cover price of two ninety-five. Cover is credited to Michael Turner and Peter Steigerwade. Uh, but... To get ahead of myself, Peter Steigerwade is credited inside the book as the colorist. And uh, the inside of the book is penciled and inked by Michael Turner. So I'm thinking that's exactly the role they probably had on this book as well. So I'm, I'm not used to them crediting a colorist, but every once in a while they seem to do that. And, it, you know, with the, hmm. the browns on the cover are varied enough that I do think it would probably it was I assume it was colored on your computer from the way it looks but I'm assuming it was a decent amount of work to get this thing done with the lights in the background and everything um, and it, it's I'm looking at the cover itself it's got Michael Turner's signature and then it looks like there might be a second signature directly underneath it do you see what I'm talking about yeah so he, they might have felt strongly enough to, to let him even sign it. I can't tell for absolute certain if that is his signature, though. I think it is. I think it's. I think it yeah, says Peter yeah, S. Yeah I, I, yeah, I think it is him. So the the cover has yeah. uh, Superman and Batman center stage. Batman is actually kind of standing partially in front of Superman. 
Uh, and down at the lower portion of the cover, we see a girl with glowing eyes uh, walking towards the reader. Uh, she looks to be naked with just a an overcoat. And then behind that, we have a souped-up bat vehicle in some water and a cityscape. And it's all kind of dim, dimly lit. Uh, I do think it's a pretty sharp cover, I have to say. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty fond of that. The story is written by Jeff Loeb, who, if nothing else, has a reputation with me of being one of the people who has that, you know, that style of I'm going to write a book that you could read in five minutes. Yeah. So the uh, the story is Supergirl from Krypton Part 1 Alone. A kryptonite meteor has fallen on Earth, spreading kryptonite bits all over the world. Superman, depressed at being the last Kryptonian, is confined to the Fortress of Solitude while everyone else deals with the aftermath. Batman is getting irritated as Superman continually tries to persuade him to let him join in, to no avail. Batman is searching for media fragments beneath Gotham Harbor when he comes upon a spaceship that has only been there for a week or two. While he examines it, a naked blonde girl comes out of the water, enters the Batboat, and makes off with it. Alerted by an automatic warning, Batman pursues and catches up shortly after it crashes into a pier. Near the warehouses, three dock workers see the girl approach. She speaks some other language, Kryptonian. Not understanding her, one of the men reaches out to her. She, she grabs his hand and squeezes his fingers, mangling them. One of his friends speak up in the man's defense and come at the girl with a crowbar of some sort. The girl pushes him back several meters, shattering the crates he lands on, and bends the crowbar out of shape. In Kryptonian, she warns the man off then asks what is happening to her. The third man gives her his coat, and she leaves shortly before Batman arrives. The girl runs through the streets in confusion. A car crashes into her, getting smashed, and when a red traffic light catches her attention, she accidentally blows it up with her heat vision. The police arrive and open fire as she explodes one of the police car's engines. Running away, she takes flight, making it to the top of a building where she's confronted by Batman. Trying to escape and avoid hurting anyone, she crashes into an automated dirigible and sends it plummeting towards the city. As she falls through a glass roof, Batman calls Superman to direct the dirigible into the harbor, then catches up with the girl who is now in tears. Unable to understand that she doesn't mean any harm, Batman knocks her out with a chunk of kryptonite and kills her. The end. Oh, wait, no. In right. the Batcave, scans, scans indicate the girl's planet of origin as Krypton. She wakes up and causes some damage before Superman intervenes and finds out that she's his cousin, Kara Zor-El. To be continued. So, my biggest problem with this story, and I think we're going to have a couple of things to discuss about it, but my biggest problem is... I just don't like what they did with Supergirl over the years. They killed her off in Crisis, which was sad. <laughs> but it kind of loses its purpose by bringing her back. Um, I don't like the protoplasm Supergirl that they had created in the meanwhile. I was not a fan of that particular iteration of her. But I just... I, I have a real problem with the whole just kind of rebooting things and starting from scratch again over and over and over again. 
So I don't know. You know, I just I just felt this was a story that didn't need to be written, really. That, and although I think the artwork in the book is beautiful, I'm pretty sure she's supposed to be something like 13, 14 years old, maybe 15 yes. at most. And to be drawing That's her naked walking problem. around the street through the whole yeah. book, I think it's yep. titillation and it's wrong. <laughs> it's just, it you know, it, it makes you feel dirty because he does draw very pretty women, so he's drawing her very pretty, but she's a kid, and that's just inappropriate, and it bothers me. So that it, that really makes me nuts in this issue because I, I can, you know, if there was some sort of purpose or dramatic effect to it, I might be able to forgive it. You know, I might be able to forgive Batman. You know, Batman strikes me as somebody that's that's wouldn't be phased by a nude woman, you know. But Superman, Superman of all people, I, I you know, there's the there's a panel and I wish the friggin' pages were numbered, but they're not. But the, the next to last page of the story essentially, mm-hmm. there's a moment where they're both levitating in the air. She, for all intents and purposes, is nude, and he's reaching with both of his arms behind his back. Now, what he's actually doing is unfastening his cape. But I can remember the first time I read this story, for just a moment, because of his body language, it looks like he's embarrassed. That would have been so much better here if he actually was, you know, embarrassed by her nudity. And he takes the cape off and puts it around her, you know, to to protect her modesty. That's a Superman moment. But instead... He takes off the cape and he just kind of hands it to her. And the very last page of the book is, again, an underage girl who's barely out of her teens. I don't think she's out of her teens at all. I mean, barely barely into her teens is what I meant to say. Because I'm serious. I, I, I think you're right. I think she's meant to be between like 13 to 16 at most. Definitely underage. It's absolutely and, inappropriate. It really is. Yeah, it's completely inappropriate. She's nude, and she's just using the the cape that he handed her to basically cover her boobs. And that's about it. I mean, he should have wrapped her in the cape. And, I mean, that is just one of, of multiple nitpicks that I've got with this. And, I mean, I could really just rip this to shreds. I mean, it depends I, on the level you want to go to. No, I, I, I want to break it down because I'll, I'll – be totally honest with you when this came out i read it i did find that to be troublesome i I, that that has not changed over the years the uh the fact that i think that's inappropriate but that's this is the only story they did that in if i remember right it's six parts the other five they don't have they don't play with any of that anymore well Uh, well, they do although they do have her in kind of a sexy outfit which I, i still think is inappropriate for somebody who's supposed to be that age uh that's what I was going to say. Is they they may not have her completely nude from this point on, but she was used, uh, you know, constantly for titillation uh, through her entire. I don't know if this character still is around these days in in DC. I don't read modern day DC, um, but I can remember for the for the remaining time that I followed Superman after this point, which was not far, because I'll be honest with you, this right here was just another uh, another sounding of the death knell for my time reading DC comics you know and keeping up with superman in particular because i just i i i've tried to have 
respect for Jeff Loeb. He has written some things that I like, but his intent, you know, his clear intent to just piss on and undo and screw up everything that John Byrne established at DC really pisses me off. And when this came out and he did this with, with, you know, the legacy of Superman and, and, you know, bringing Kara back and, you know, just completely ignoring the groundwork of, you know, the Superman character that was established, you know, post-crisis, you know, just to do his own thing because he had an axe to grind really pisses me off. And, and it was not, I mean, I wasn't long for, you know, reading Superman on a regular basis at this point after reading, you know, and keeping up with the character in, in every appearance in DC comics, for almost 20 years at this point, you know, by the, when this came out, but this, this was just, you know, this was a clear sign that my days were numbered with, with keeping up with the character. Cause I just, I hated his take on Superman and I hated the fact that he was just so intent to just ignore continuity and, and rewrite it and do his own thing. And, you know, and just really just piss all over what Byrne had established. Uh, that annoys me to no end, and I'm I'm still pissed about it. See, and and I probably rival you in my respect for the work of John Byrne, but I'm not as linked into his Superman work as you are. I love his Superman work, but it's not the holy grail for me. I'm probably more with his X-Men stuff than with his Superman stuff. Uh, right. That said... I, I love his stuff, and I, it doesn't bother me as much that it got changed over the years because I think that's just the nature of comics. It happens all the time. But I, I, I have to say this in a delicate way. It was an absolute tragedy that Jeff Loeb's son died. I, I can't say it any other way. But since that happened... I think there's been a thought, an internet thought, that you can't criticize his work because that's because he went through this horrible thing and that we have to just give him a free pass on everything he does. No. And I don't agree with that thought, but I think that thought exists. That if you criticize right. Jeff Loeb, somehow you're a bad person because his son died. And again, it's a tragedy that his son died. I have I have a son, and you know I, I can relate that it would just be a horrible, horrible thing. But his comic book writing is a totally different animal than his personal life. They shouldn't necessarily be linked together. And I, I like a lot of what he's written, but I do find it's very, very light fare, and it's not something that stays with me. Uh, I'm thinking of what he did with the, the Red Hulk. As that was coming out, I enjoyed reading it, but every book that came out, it was a five-minute read and done. Uh, this, right. was, this was kind of the same thing for me. I enjoyed this when it was coming out. I didn't really look at the ramifications of what it was doing to the DC Universe. That's more of a retcon thing for me, where it, it bothers me a little bit more now with them constantly just bringing back characters and eliminating characters and bringing them back and pretending like they didn't exist before. Uh, that all bothers me. But my biggest criticism of Jeff Loeb has always been the same, that his, his stuff takes five minutes to read and it's done. And 
I do think there's a certain disregard from the for the writers who came before him. I don't think he has that love that say Kurt Busiak or Mark Wade or or guys like that too that, you know, they're always trying to mine stuff that previously had been written and try and build on it in some way. Uh it's easier for some people to just tear it down and start anew, and I think Jeff Loeb is one of those guys. So yeah. I, I respect it more when they can take the existing continuity. Being a guy who's read comics for 40-some-odd years, uh, I, I prefer them to, to wrap all the history together and just give me something that still makes sense with it instead of just saying, you know, all that stuff that you read? Yeah, just ignore that. I'm going to start it from scratch again. I always have a problem with comic book writers that don't, respect the work that came before them and either actively work to subvert that work because they have some axe to grind or they have you know a a beef or whatever with some other creator or whatever but also the ones that frankly i feel they're just goddamn lazy that they don't want to do the homework to find out, okay, what is the continuity of this character? What are the stories that have been told? You know, where am I? Where am I picking up in this story? And so they just, you know, they do their own thing, and continuity be damned. And unfortunately, this, you know, comic here falls right into an era where an awful lot of that was happening uh, at DC. I felt, and I, and I feel like an awful lot of it was uh, Jeff Loeb. I mean, the guy wrote some some really good things, and I enjoyed you know some of the things that he wrote. It's not like he's a hack or something, you know. He he really did do some good stuff, and you know I don't have any any personal you know dislike of the man. It's just his his lack of I don't know. To me, it comes down to a lack of professionalism. You know, when you come in. And you just piss all over something because you're whatever the the reason is, you're not happy with how things are. And because I'm trying to remember, I, I may be remembering things incorrectly about him and Byrne. It seems to me like he and Byrne had some sort of tift or something. Maybe I'm misremembering that. But clearly, he didn't, you know, whether the whether Byrne was part of the equation for him or not, he didn't respect the post-crisis uh superman continuity or you know the 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 cotton the new continuity that was established after the crisis on infinite earths and before he got his grubby little hands on superman as a regular gig it was apparent in other projects that he worked on in the post-crisis dc universe because i remember uh, he there was something he wrote with Superman involved with uh, a Challengers of the Unknown um, limited series that he did that went pro, you know went counter to established continuity with Superman, and then he he did the much lauded um, Superman for all seasons prestige prestige format uh, series. It was a four issue prestige format. That thing gets so much overhype, and it's not like it was bad or anything. But I never cottoned to that book, and the biggest reason I didn't didn't really take to it is that it just it, it really just flew in the face again of established continuity. He ignored what had come before to tell his story, and you know that sort of thing really bugs me 
in the post-crisis world of DC much more than it ever would. You know, like pre-crisis, you just kind of rolled with those things because you had guys like, you know, Bob Haney out there doing, you know, wacky shit and brave and the bold and telling his own stories and continuity be damned. And you just kind of learned to roll with it. But post-crisis, you know, the whole DC universe went through such a thing to try to, you know, really bring everything under one roof and tighten town continuity and, and make it feel unified and, and go in the right direction. And these days, the, the reputation that DC has, you know, with its detractors and, and you know, like, say, Marvel fans that look at DC and, and, you know, just point to, you know, the constant crises and how screwed up it is and they just can't get into it because of, how messed up continuity it is and everything, you know, the reason for that isn't where they want to place the blame. It's not on crisis on infinite earths as an event, which I see constantly on the internet. You know, these, these young kids that look at crisis and go, yeah, that's where DC went wrong. No, it's not. That's where DC went very, very right. Where it went wrong was not slapping the hands of assholes like this that just, ignored all that continuity to tell the stories that they wanted to tell and there was no editorial oversight going uh you can't do that because that doesn't mesh up with everything else somehow or other Loeb became this superstar that they just let him do whatever the hell he wanted to and continuity be damned and then they wound up in the exact same problem that they'd had 20 years prior and then they need new crises after new crises because nothing meshes up anymore and the readers are getting pissed off and you know, confused. So I, you know, this is one of the, the major guys that I blame for where DC stands today with their screwed up continuity and with their friend, uh, fan dis, you know, disenfranchisement, because this just put me off, you know, after being so invested in the new DC universe and, and Superman and his family in particular, and keeping up with it and enjoying where it was going and everything. And then they hand the reins over to Loeb, who just little by little just keeps, you know, screwing it up and, and injecting this horseshit into it. That's where they lost me. See, I, I this, think I have a theory, and I don't know if, if it holds water or not, so I'm going to just bounce it off you. Is that after the great image break off, when, when, you know, they created some superstar creators and mostly artists really but uh they created superstar creators who then left in order to compete with that i felt like they wanted to prop people up as being the new line of superstars and i think they right. wanted to go with writers more than artists because i don't know exactly why but it felt to me like they propped up guys like jeff Loeb, brian michael bendis uh all of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank. Who's the the DC guy who was their uh, flavor of the of the decade? Um, the one who he was writing Superman for on? a while. He was writing Superman and Action Comics for a while, and then he did Justice League and Morrison. No, no, not Morrison. Uh, he he was he ended up becoming like a co a co executive over at DC. Oh. um... Not, you're not talking about Jeff Johns, are you? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Okay, yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like it felt like they need, they did this in an effort to compete with the image properties and the independent properties that were kind of 
weren't overtaking them, but they were creeping up on them. And right. they, they felt that that was the wave of the future, the superstar creator. And instead of letting it happen organically, I felt like they kind of forced it on us a little bit. Well, you know, I'll, I'll agree and I'll disagree because I don't know if John's is a good example because John's was a hell of a writer. I mean, he, he was a hell of a lot better writer than Jeff Loeb. And, and he did care the, about continuity. Absolutely. And I'm absolutely, not I'm not I'm not comparing them to each other. I'm just saying I felt like the right. companies propped these guys up and kind of promoted them a lot to us as the superstars. Uh yeah, you know. And I, I think I'll, it was in an effort to compete. I'll I'll give you that. Yeah, I I think you're onto something there because yeah, he he ended up becoming you know what he is now, which you know he's one of the guys that runs DC now, and yeah, I, I think a lot of that was inflated. Although you know, for a time, the the guy definitely earned the reputation that he at, had because he was a, a hell of a writer. Oh, he wrote but, a lot of great stuff. So did so did Bendis. I mean, I'm not trying to say these guys suck. There's right. certain things they've written that I love. Certain things I've written that they've written that I'm not quite as high on. Uh, but but. I think all of these guys are talented, including Loeb. But I think at some point they lacked some editorial direction, which I right. think is something you pointed to there. I think they their talent would have been better or better served if they had a slightly stronger editorial hand. I think you know when we see it in comics, whenever one of these guys uh, or when it, one of these creators, because it's not always guys. But whenever one of these creators gets a little too much power and they and they don't have an editor to reel them in, they get a little far out sometimes. And, and sometimes I think the product, you know, suffers for it a little bit. Yeah. I, th I think we get stuff sometimes that's a little bit more ego-driven than it needs to be. Yeah. That's so. for sure. Now, now talking about this, and talk about a you know tragedy. Michael Turner, uh, the artist on this, I, I want to try and turn this positive for a few minutes. Uh, he tragically passed away. I believe he had some form of cancer that took his life at a, a pretty yeah. young age. Uh, for the most part, I think the art in this is outstanding. Uh, the only thing about his work that I'm not that crazy about is. Uh, if you go to this, the double page spread with uh, Superman trying to stop the dirigible from falling, down at the bottom of that page, there's a close-up of his face. I'm not crazy about like the lantern jaw. It's, it's almost, if you look at it, if you tried to take that image and turn his head, you know, if you could create it into a 3D image, he has Jay Leno's jaw. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, that's like the one image in this book that I really, really don't like. I, I like pretty much everything in the book except Superman's actual face. Um, I don't feel like he captures Superman's face right, and I don't know if it's intentional or not because I think clearly his style is heavily influenced by, um, you know, it has a strong Japanese influence, you know, manga, uh, Japanimation influence. So maybe that's what I'm seeing here, but. Um, I don't think, other than the, the Asian influence in the art, I don't think that the characters look particularly Asian, except Superman. There's something about 
the way his face is is sculpted and, and drawn and everything that he to me he looks very distinctly Asian and it just it, it looks odd um, you know for this particular character his weird bushy eyebrows and uh, yeah the the you know I'm fine with Superman having a, a squared off you know a lantern jaw as they call it but his is freakish looking and yeah you're right that I that's really the only picture of Superman I, I really like in the whole book is where he's you know he's holding on to the flaming dirigible and guiding it but yeah his everything looks great about that except his face it, you know it, it just yeah it doesn't work yeah I, I I other than that I I really this was I think my first actual exposure to Michael Turner and I loved it. I thought the artwork was beautiful, except for the fact... If, if You know what would make yeah. it beautiful? If Supergirl was 30. <laughs> then, then, then I'd have no problem with anything in this issue. Well, I don't know. I, I Even then, I still have a problem with... And I don't know, call me a prude, but I just I don't think this is the way that you introduce a character like this. Well, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of being facetious about the 30 thing but uh yeah she's supposed to be very pure and very innocent so the last thing you should do is be presenting her in a sexy way right you know if if anything if if you had anything of that nature it should be something where all of a sudden she's embarrassed by it or something something of that nature you know cuz then it would at least forward the story a little bit by showing how innocent she is that she's embarrassed or something you know that that she comes out of this ship and and is you know she should be immediately looking for something to cover up because she's embarrassed by it right that would actually you know that would make sense to me at least but i'm i'm trying to to justify it in some way in my mind and i can't yeah i don't i don't remember the story clear enough to remember if something's wrong with her, you know, to where she has no modesty because maybe she's a blank slate or something. But then again, she she speaks Kryptonian, so she clearly remembers at least that much. So I, I, I just don't remember enough of the story to remember. Like, if she knew who she was, if she's simply just a displaced teenager, then you would think that she would have enough modesty to be be like, oh my goodness, I'm naked, let me cover up. But she's pretty open in this. You know, I mean, yeah, she's got the trench coat, but then she's running around with the trench coat hanging completely wide open. Yeah, like you I know? said, if, if, so, she had, if she had come out of there and confronted these three dudes and got a trench coat from one of them and then, you know, quickly used it to cover herself up because she she understood that, you know, she was exposed and right. she was embarrassed by it. That would serve a purpose. That would serve a story purpose. That would be something where you're showing how she's innocent, and, and right. you know, and and that she's got values of some sort. I, right. I I think that that's a lot better than like you said. Even when she's got the coat, it's it's hanging off. And and I I can't help but think that the the whole purpose of that was to get a rise out of the audience. And I I'm, I I'd rather, wish I had a better way of saying that. Uh, but it's true. You're you're absolutely right because they continued to do this with her well beyond this issue. Again, I don't, I can't recall off the top of my head where she was ever completely nude again. But clearly, I mean, look at the covers of her series or, or books that she appeared in. 
and it was always, you know, an, an up the up the ass shot or a crotch shot or, you know, her panties were showing. You know, it was that that thing that uh, that a lot of the Japanese comics do, you know, where it was the, the young schoolgirl bending over and you could, you know, you can see her, her panties. And I mean, Jesus Christ, that's that's not it's not acceptable. I mean, this is an underage girl. It doesn't matter that she's a space alien. She's clearly drawn as, as a young girl and it's just inappropriate. And I'm shocked that somebody in the process somewhere didn't, you know, didn't say no with this, but clearly it went through whoever, I don't see an editor credited on the book. Oh, it's Eddie Berganza. So, you know, it went through Berganza, it went through, I'm sure there's several levels of, of filters and things that it has to go through before it actually sees print and goes to the newsstand. And it passed all of those. And the only reason that I can think that it did is because of the two names that are on the book. You've got Loeb, who was, you know, a hot flavor at the time, and you've got Turner, who was one of the hottest artists at the time. Because he had done all these, you know, girly mags forever. Or, I mean, I shouldn't say girly mags, but you know what I mean. These mm-hmm. these other these other magazines for other publishers that were, you know, sexy, attractive, you know, half dressed young girls, and it had made him a huge star. And, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Michael Turner. I think he's a hell of an artist. He he was on the road to super super stardom i mean if he was still alive today more than likely he'd be one of those guys that we'd really hold up he was probably on his way to being the mcfarlane of his time you know yeah and and, and tragically tragically passed away yeah yeah, but i'm gonna i'm gonna from the uh from the dc fandom uh database uh it says supergirl arriving on earth naked was retconned out by Sterling Gates at the beginning of his run. So well, what someone is that? I'm not sure. But uh, at some point, someone yeah. decided that was inappropriate. Yeah, well, you know, you can't unprint it, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that, that, I guess that goes a little ways toward fixing it. You know, if somebody came in and maybe, you know, I'm wondering what the, the impetus for that was. Did, was there complaining? You know, did somebody say, hey, this is just wrong. And so they were trying to, you know, to, to make it right. I don't know. That's interesting. I'll have to look into that. I, I, don't, I was not aware of that. You but know, like I say, I was not around for much longer after this point. When the uh, when the next crisis came along, the um, the infinite crisis came along. That that was pretty much that was my jumping off point. Because I just by that point I had soured on DC. I realize now that maybe it was I don't know unfair, unrealistic, whatever you know descriptor you want to use to expect DC to always and forever from 1986 forward to stick to the promise that they'd made. But that's how I felt about it then. And and to a large degree, realistic or not, that's still how I feel about it today. They, you know, they made a promise and I felt like they should have stuck to their promise. And unfortunately, once regimes at DC started to change and, and editorial, you know, uh, staffing changed and people left and new people came in less and less did they feel compelled to you know to toe the same line that 
their predecessors had towed. If their predecessors towed it at all, that was part of the problem too. Is not everybody right from the the get go with the new continuity was on board. There were still people that were bucking the system, you know, right from the first post crisis stories. So, you know, DC's they've had a problem for a long time, and uh, and it, it just compounded by the time it got to this right here. Yeah, see, I see, I wasn't as quite as I don't know. Like it didn't bother the whole promise part of it I, I kind of agree with you but i'm not sure like i was as so bothered by that as much as the fact that it felt like you know you, you talked before about laziness it felt like it was lazy that every time they backed themselves into a corner and they let themselves be backed in a corner by not having proper editorial controls every time they let that happen they would just reboot it again they did it too yeah. much you know they did it Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then they did Infinite Crisis, and they did Final Crisis, and they did uh, the Rebirth, and they did the New 52, you know, Flash, uh, whatever. So, yeah. You know, it, it became just a crutch for them that, they, you know, anytime we, we screw up, we can just do this again. Yep. And we just started from the beginning, and we're going to see a quick boost in sales because people are going to be curious to see what the new status quo is going to be. And then we're going to tail off and stop paying attention to it. And, you know, and, and it was, a, I also thought it was lazy that it's like, okay, we're, we're rebooting everything except Batman because Batman's really popular. So we're just going to leave that the way it is. Right. You know, it's like, oh, what? I, I, that bothered me. And then, then, like, for Marvel to see this go on and then say, you know what, we're going to do the same thing with Spider Man. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't you see why this is wrong? Don't you, you know, can't you learn from their lesson? I don't know. It's it, it's well, you know, I don't blame them because DC, DC has not learned from their own lessons. I mean, how many times have they done this now? And and they get their quick fix. Of each sales. time they, yeah, and each time they do it, they they don't do it right. I mean, because if there's there's one lesson that they probably should have learned from, you know, from the original Crisis, from Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, it's hard for me to ever say anything critical of that story because I love that story. I, I do think that it is, I think it's comics finest hour, frankly. I really do, at least for DC Comics. I mean, it is an incredible story. But one thing that, uh you know, Wolfman, the, the writer of that story, wanted to do right from the get-go was reboot everything and start everything over. And DC didn't let him do it. There's, there's this thing that's built up over the years, mostly by people that I think, frankly, didn't live through that era and maybe have never really properly read Crisis on Infinite Earths, where right, Crisis has gained this, this uh, reputation as being a reboot. Crisis isn't a reboot. It didn't reboot anything. It consolidated their universe into one unified timeline, but it did not reboot anything. That's true. The well, except Superman later. rebooted. But not out of Crisis. Right. Yeah. Superman rebooted right. on his own. But they didn't learn from that, because then in the subsequent ones that they've done, where they probably should have done a full reboot, as you say, you know, like with uh, with which one was it? Infinite Crisis, I think. No, I'm sorry. the The new Fifty Two one, wherever the hell the name of that reboot was, you know, the Flashpoint. That was Flashpoint. Yeah. 
you know, they, they just kept going with uh, with Batman and Green Lantern because they were selling. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, at least I think that's why I might be confusing my crises. I don't know. No, but, I'm pretty sure you know you're I mean? right on that. And and so, I don't know. It's just it's indicative of, of a bigger problem that they have, but it, it all goes back to, to this, in my opinion. But. And, and sometimes I think it, it shows... I'm gonna. I, I'm, I don't think I have the right term for it because I feel like it's saying it shows a lack of respect for the reader. I'm not so oh, sure yeah. that's correct. I think it's more a lack of respect for the sophistication of the readership. I, I think yeah. they, they they think the readers are just gonna, you know, just kind of accept whatever they do. And see, they've backed themselves into a corner on this in many ways because. They've catered to the same audience for so long that the readership has gotten older and older and older. And, you know, that's underst- I understand that there's many readers who are younger than I am, but there's not a lot of readers who are, say, 25 and under now, like they used to be. There's, there's fans who are that age, but not really readers. Um, so you, you've kept the readers around, you, you know, you're writing books that are meant for people who are in their late 30s and 40s and even 50s and maybe even older than that. If you're going to do that, then you have to respect the fact that they've been around and reading it for a long time and respect their desire, because I do think it's very prevalent, to have a continuity. You know, you can't just say, okay, we're going to start all over because our readership has changed. Because you know what? Your readership hasn't changed. Right. You know, there used to be a theory, a prevailing theory in comics where, you know, every three years we have a new readership because people read them from when they're, I guess, you know, 9 to 12 and then they stop. But that's not the case anymore. That hasn't been the case Really that hasn't been the case in, in a long in, time. You know, since since I was in the nine to twelve range, it it hasn't been the case, right? Because most people I know who were reading back then, you know, who were into it, stayed into it, and and you know they they don't they don't appreciate the reboots that much. I think there was a certain excitement over the re the reworking of the DC universe under Crisis. And I think there was some more willingness to accept it almost from the perspective of, well, we already had two different Supermen, you know, Earth 1 and Earth 2. So I I can deal with the fact that they're going to kind of shuffle things around and fix things and and, and create a continuity that works. But I think that has been lost over the years with subsequent efforts to... uh, to reboot effectively. And I think there is a certain initial curiosity that gives them a a spike in sales. But I think history has now shown us you can't maintain that without having quality. Quality is what keeps people coming, not gimmicks. And they keep going back to gimmick after gimmick after gimmick in comics, whether it's the multiple covers or, or, you know, the, the mega crossovers or rebooting things. Those things will give you a spike in sales sometimes, but they're not going to be sustainable. And if you want to have an industry, and we've talked about this, I feel like we've gone full circle because now it's almost like we're having the same conversation we had the first time I was ever on Back to the Bins. But uh, if, right. if you want this to be a sustainable product, you need to worry about the quality that you're putting out, not the gimmicks. 
Absolutely. So, you want to rate this? <laughs> well, I, you know, in fairness, I, I, I feel like I, I feel like I've kind of complained about what the the what this rot as opposed to the the, the issue itself. I will say that uh, there are some absolutely stunning pieces of art in this book. I mean, some really stunning panels and, and sequences and everything. I do generally like, you know, really like the way that Turner draws Batman. He he does an incredible Batman. There's only really one uh, Batman panel in the whole book that I'm I, I'm a little sketchy on, and it's when Batman is rising out of the water at the dock after the the bat boat or bat whatever it is crashes you know he's all tattered and torn and everything it looks awesome except when you really pay attention to his midsection he almost looks like he's an elastic character like a stretching character because his midsection there's something just not quite right about it it's his his abs and his his stomach area are just they're too flat and yeah he 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 looks like he's stretchy he he does look like he's bent over in a in a in a way that would not work for a spine uh, yeah but not, but you know what the, the internal organs <laughs> the uh the drawing is dark enough that it kind of unless you're looking closely you're not going to notice that right um yeah, it, it looks like 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 once you get over the pelvis, once you get above the pelvis, it's almost like he's at a ninety degree angle from the the hips to the yeah. to to the rib cage, and yeah, that's not you know, and he's not seated, and that's not really still not anatomically capable of moving right. that way. It, it, you you are right about that. Uh, it does. It also looks. It looks to me like he's you know in coming out of Ra's al Ghul's. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the you know, with the flaming things around them and everything. It's just, I, I, I don't think it's a bad rendering. It's almost like if you, if there had been a line, if you look, you know, he's got, if you look at the mask, and if you go straight down from that, and if they had just extended his abdomen to kind of fill up that area a little bit, it would, I think it would be a stunning piece of uh, art. But it just—he's yeah. just bent over a little too strangely. Uh, yeah. But I—I I, I, frankly, I hadn't noticed that until you just pointed it out. So my my biggest my biggest crit- critique is the uh, Superman face that I don't like with the Jay Leno jaw. Uh, I tell you, one uh, you know another thing I really like here is that I, I found it very strange in Batman comics, like when my boys were little. You know, in the in, you know through the '90s and the in the early 2000s, you know, you had things on TV like, you know, Batman the animated series and Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And during that time when they were little, there were a billion Batman figures out on the stands, and you had, I mean, it had to be hundreds of variations of Batman's costume. You know, to where you had. You know, flamethrower Batman, and you know, underwater Batman, and you know, skydiver Batman, and you know, just all these crazy figures. You know, each one with a with a Batman-looking you know outline to it, but it was you know a different color scheme and a different function to his outfit. You know, in all these different figures that they put out, 
And at the same time they were doing that, the Batman in the comic always wore pretty much the same standard outfit. So I really like here that in the sequences when he's underwater investigating the crashed ship, they actually give him, you know, a different costume and an underwater uh, variant of his Batman costume. And it's a very simple thing, but I think it's really cool. Like he, he looks uh, dynamic and I really like the outfit because it's uh, it's kind of like a, cross between a, a diver's you know wetsuit and uh, and a batman costume and i just thought that was a, a neat little touch that you know as as incredible as like say somebody like jim apero could make batman's costume look when he was underwater because i i don't know i couldn't tell you why exactly but i always loved brave and the bold stories and i think it actually happened in aquaman's title too but i always liked stories where batman and Aquaman would either team up or even fight um, when drawn by Jim Apero, because I loved Apero's Batman and I loved Apero's Aquaman. So, you know, getting them both in the same book was always a real treat. But when you look at that, even with, you know, the, the slightest uh, eye towards, you know, realism and functionality, it would be ridiculous for a caped figure to, to go in their regular, you know, tights and cape and everything and, and go underwater like he would always do in those stories. It's just ridiculous. So I like here, you know, he doesn't have a cape or anything, and he's got what looks like, you know, a, a fairly functional uh, diver's outfit. So that that's really neat. And I, and I like the visual that they've got here for that. Yeah, yeah and, I agree. Uh, I like the design of the... Uh, is it a hydrofoil? Is that what you call that that type of thing? Because it's not really the bat boat, because it, it it like skims the water. It looks like. Yeah, I guess that would be a a good uh, a good title for it. Or but I, I like the look of it. Yeah, well, it's. it's I think my kids had uh, a, a, like a little diecast uh, toy that looked very similar to this. Like I think it was like from the bat, like from the TV show, you know, the uh, cartoon series or something. This, this reminds me. This seems to be like an offshoot of the uh, the Batmobile from the Tim Burton comics. Yeah, yeah. The the fin at the back is a little too overly large, though. Yeah, that seems to be unrealistic. But you know, what do I? Yeah, know? I hope I'm, he doesn't I'm need to go in under any low. Yeah, if he has to go in under any low bridges or something, he's in trouble with that giant fin. Of course, she. She destroys it anyway. She crashes it into the dock, but no, because it's so big. <laughs> but beyond that, I really don't have a lot. I mean, there's not a lot here. I no, mean... it's, it's a very, very light story, <laughs> or it's very light for story. I mean, they're just not giving us a lot. This is this is you know the typical written for the trade '90s book, even though it's 2004. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that this has tick, been tickling my brain and I just can't remember properly. But when this came out, I want to say that there were either two published versions um, where one gave you the English translation of the of the Kryptonese or they gave you like a like a 
translation guide online or something like that. Am I am I remembering that right? Because there's a lot of this book that you can't read because it's in Kryptonese. But I'm trying to remember how how you could get the translation guide. And I, I can't remember if it I was they, they may published have, two I think versions. They may or? Have, I think they may have given a uh, a like a you know one of those guides where each letter they they tell you what the symbol is for each letter and you could sit and figure it out if you wanted to i think they may have done that in this but i'm not 100% sure yeah i, I, yeah, I can't remember i that, i certainly would not have the patience to sit here and <laughs> and then go through this letter by letter to see what it, what they say right they would have to present well, that was to really annoying in rereading this is that there's there's several pages of dialogue that you can't you don't know what they're saying i'm going to do a quick internet search quick google search to see if if there's a translation of it out there i you know i'm trying to remember cuz I, I remember there being a stink about that too that Either there were two versions of it published, or yep, or you had to go online. Here we go. I, I can't. I can't remember. There's a, a page here. It's Justin Ducour, just D U C O E U R, and he's got a live journal, and he says, "Okay, I'm a geek. There's no denying it." One evidence of my geek too is the fact that despite my absolute incompetence when it comes to any human language other than English, I have a mild knack for ciphers, at least easy ones. In particular, I'm incapable of looking at substitution cipher without solving it. All I need to do is look for a few minutes, draw up a quick chart, and within a few minutes I'm able to simply read the language fairly quickly. Why I cope so well with alternate alphabets and so badly with alternate vocabularies, I'm not sure. Anyway, he, he gives translations. Uh... Which, 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 anyone in particular that you're interested in? Uh... No, I, I was just trying to remember what what the deal, like how you were supposed to learn what they were saying in this, and I couldn't remember what the deal was. Whether they published two versions of it, or whether you had to go online and find the translation guide. Because I, I remember there was a comic like that that was published at one point, because I can remember, you know, back when there used to be like, like message boards and stuff. I remember the message boards lighting up over this one comic that got published and the fans were all pissed off because, you know, they, they bought this book and then they can't read it and they didn't, they didn't publish the translation guide in the comic itself. It was available online and I, I'm, it's tickling my brain that it might be this issue, but I can't remember. So I'm just going into the discussion between her and Superman. Uh, it's Kara, you speak Kryptonese. Cal, I do. The question is, why do you? Kara, I speak this language because I come from the planet Krypton. Cal, really? Krypton was destroyed years ago and everyone on it. Kara, not everyone. My uncle was the head of the science council. He tried to get them to understand the planet was unstable, but they wouldn't listen. Cal, your uncle? Kara, yes, my father's brother. Kara, he built a spaceship, a proto prototype, intending to send his entire family, but I think time ran out. My father was also a scientist. He believed his brother and built a similar but larger spacecraft following the same coordinates. Cal, your uncle, what was his name? Kara, Jorel. He and my Aunt Lara had a son, Kal-El. Kal-El, 
I am, or Cal, I am Kal-El. Jor-El was my father. Kara, then I made it. But you were just a baby, and, oh, I don't care. I have family here. I'm Kara, Kara Zor-El. So that's the conversation that they have. It's interesting. Nothing too deep It's interesting, in there, but it's also, it's also not following continuity. So it's very convenient. Yeah. That they just know everything. Because this this is also after a point when Loeb had tried unsuccessfully to do a mild reboot of Superman's origin to retcon it basically back to the old Silver Age uh, Superman origin and continuity. And fans kind of got up in arms about it, and so he quickly backed off on it. But it was uh, Superman, it was volume two, I think it was issue 166, where this, this probe lands, or this rocket lands... And basically tells Superman everything you know up to this point has all been a lie, and uh, yeah, that that didn't go over well at all. But this here is clearly, you know, referencing an origin that no longer syncs up with post-crisis continuity because Superman didn't come to Earth as a baby, and mm-hmm. it's continuity. He didn't leave Krypton as a baby anyway. And Jor-El and Lara were never together. They were, they were, uh, you know, biologically compatible. They had been selected to have a child produced from the, you know, from their genes, but they weren't together. Which is closer and, to the Man of Steel origin, kind of, as far as that goes. Not that they weren't together, because they were together in Man of Steel, but it was more of a. Uh, Birthing a baby was generally considered to be a, a you know purely a biological function, and they were using birthing chambers and that type of thing. Are you talking the movie? Yeah. Oh, okay, I never saw it. And and you don't want to. And uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's fine. I'm just saying they did they did kind of bastardize the uh, the story there because in in that story. Uh, Jor-El and Lara had had a baby the natural way, but they, it was the first baby in years and years and years that went against Kryptonian uh, philosophies and the like. So it, it was it was definitely hmm. playing with the burn theory, but not totally adopting it. Right. That was one of the things that that just made Zod insane, is because you know they they were it was you know a, an act of heresy for them to do that. Right. So. Anyway, it's uh, hmm. it is what it is. But uh, oh, let's rate this one. <laughs> okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start on the highs. I think the cover is really nice. I like it a lot. I'm giving it an A. That's that's as high as we're getting in this book, though. Uh, the interior art I think is really solid for the most part, with the exception of. I think with the exception of the anatomy on the picture you pointed out and uh, Superman's face on the picture that I pointed out. Otherwise, I'm pretty happy with it throughout. There's a couple of little things, and it usually goes to Superman's face, although his his face isn't depicted all that much in this book. Uh, I'm not going to take away points from Turner for drawing what what Loeb wrote. Uh as far as you know what we've criticized on that 
I think overall this this artwork is really solid, and I think it's pretty much like an A minus, uh, just just because there's a couple of little deficiencies, but nothing to speak of. Story is where I start having the problem. Um, I'm not crazy about the way Superman's depicted here. He's kind of like a, a whiny bitch. Uh, I'm not <laughs> crazy about the whole presenting Supergirl as kind of a sex symbol when she's supposed to be a young teenager. Uh, and, you know, again, Batman is the infallible, can-do-nothing-wrong ever character. So I have I have issues with it. I think it's an enjoyable read. It's a quick read, but I have problems with it. Uh, so I'm going to... If if it wasn't for the problems, I'd probably give it a B because I think it is a fairly enjoyable read, but I do have the problems, so I'm knocking it down to a C. And overall, I'll give the book a B because the artwork carries the day. Um, I like the cover. What's interesting is, uh, you know, we're looking at this, or at least I'm looking at this from a scan, and so it, it has multiple covers. And I like the published cover, but the the one that's the sketch cover, where it's just the, you know the black and white penciled artwork, that's the one I really like the best because Batman without that weird shadow across his face, I like that. I like the look on his face that much better. The eyes are more defined, the scowl on his face, and you know the the you know the real tight you know, uh, eyebrows as he's, you know, he's just making that scowl. It just looks really dynamic. It's, it's very, uh, you know, reminiscent of say Neil Adams or, uh, or Jim Aparo. It's a damn good Batman. It looks really good. And while I don't care for Turner's Superman, again, that the sketch, I like a lot better because I notice if you flip back and forth between the two images, between the sketch and the finished artwork with the colors and everything, they actually changed Superman's expression. Because in the original sketch, he's actually got a little smile. He's got a little quirky smile in the corner of his mouth, and his eyes are a little more playful. But then you look at the one that's actually, uh, you know, the finished uh, cover, and they have removed the little smile in the corner of his mouth. So now he's almost, he's not quite scowling. Pretty close but to it. He's, yeah, but he's not—he's not smiling either. And I don't know. It's little things like that that make the difference for me, because I think that that black and white cover really accentuates the differences in the characters, which a book like this should emphasize those differences. Batman is the—you know—the dark dread Avenger of the night, and Superman's—you know—he's the—he's the lighter character. Um, but the published, or I mean, the uh, the the finished one doesn't—it well, just doesn't do that. But that said, I mean, it is a really nice piece of artwork. Um, it's tough because you've got a figure I really like and then a, a figure I don't much care for. So overall, I think I'd go... Ooh, it's tough. I, th- I think I'd go a B on the cover because Superman's the one that needs some work. Everything else looks pretty good. Um, I don't like the glowy eye thing, but I, you know, if they're going to do it, I'd rather they do it with a character, right, you know, some other character besides Superman. At least Superman doesn't have the glowy eyes. I'm so sick of that at this point. Interior art is absolutely fantastic when it comes to just about everything except Superman. Um, Batman is fantastic. I mean, he looks really good. I'm, 
I need to pull up uh, Turner's credits and see if he ever did any other Batman because this Batman's really cool. Uh, I love that uh, two-page splash of uh, of you know when we first see him underwater, mm-hmm. being towed along by the little uh, you know the little whatever that is like a bat manta ray ship or whatever the hell that thing is that's towing him through the water. That's just a really nice shot, and the coloring really works. I mean, he really looks like he's underwater in this murky, you know, filthy Gotham River or wherever it's supposed to be. That that's really neat. Um, so I like his Batman. Um, you know, the action sequences are pretty good. And, you know, despite what we've said about Kara and, you know, the inappropriateness of her of her dress and everything, that panel where she's being surprised by the car headlights, I mean, Turner could, I mean, he could draw a beautiful woman. I mean, she's gorgeous right there. She's very, very pretty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can't fault him on, you know, how he drew women. And, uh, well, you know, that's he, what I said. I, I wouldn't hold it against him that he wrote, he drew what was written for him. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, I'm going to blame Loeb for that. <laughs> that's all. Right. So, I mean, the, the only real harsh criticism I've gotten in the whole book, art-wise, is Superman's face. He just doesn't quite capture Superman's face right. He just, he's off somehow. Uh, but other than that, I really dig it. I think I would give the interior art, um, I think I'd give it a solid, uh, I'll say A-, minus because there's, there's still room for improvement here and there. But overall, I mean, pretty incredible. I mean, the, it, it really strongly reminds me of, um, of Todd McFarlane, like when McFarlane was first becoming a hot property um, during his time. I, I see some really strong parallels there. I mean, not art-wise necessarily, but just, you know, in in where they were in their careers at this point. And then story-wise, uh, this is where I have to be harshest of all. Story-wise, this is a flat F for me. It, it fails on every level because it's just, it's, it's pissing on everything that came before it. And I didn't, I... While I liked generally the Batman Superman book... They also had this weird, I don't know, I hesitate to call it like a, I don't know, I'm trying to remember how it was referred to when, when this came out. Because I remember other people having the same criticism that Superman and Batman's relationship in this, um, it, it bordered on like the homoerotic, and that, that bothered me. This weird... Uh, play that they had off of each other in, in their dialogue and everything. It was, it just, it didn't ring true for either character. Um, they, they almost, they, they were almost like a, like an old married couple or something in some of their dialogue. And it was just awkward. I liked the fact that, you know, after so many years in the DC universe of these two having started out as kind of adversaries and not friends that it had taken all this time for them to kind of become friends. I did like that aspect of it. And I liked that now we were seeing a, a new, essentially a world's finest book, although they didn't call it that, that had come about organically rather than just say, okay, here's our two top characters and we're going to put them in one book together and they're going to be best friends. You know, we never really saw that relationship build pre-crisis, but here we did. I mean, it was a long process of these two characters kind of finding 
each other and finding a friendship. And, and I liked that dynamic. It's just when we got to this book, the the way they were written was a, it was a little weird somehow and I could never quite put my finger on it just a lot of the dialogue just doesn't doesn't ring true somehow right no but, I, I think I think I I probably turned a blind eye to it for the most part but I do think I know exactly what you're talking about and you so know what so, I mean yeah sometimes the the relationship just didn't seem quite right um, yeah it was it was a little off somehow but yeah really the the biggest thing for me is you know does the story work for what it's intended to do which is um you know to reintroduce this character which you know i I agree with you and that was another one of my big problems here is that it's bringing back a character that should not be brought back I'm with you. I never really cared too much for the the protoplasm, you know, Supergirl. I, I felt she worked for the story that she was created for, but I felt like she shouldn't have lived beyond that story. I felt like Byrne having her survive that story and then coming to live with Mon Pa Kent and becoming the new Supergirl, I felt like I always felt that was a big mistake. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like it kind of muddied continuity because she was the new Supergirl, but she wasn't really Supergirl. She wasn't really, she wasn't really anybody. You know what I mean? She was kind of a cipher. She was created for that story and then brought out of that story to, and, and stuck around. But it it was always awkward. But at least I felt I could tolerate that character because, thank God, she wasn't she wasn't. Kara brought back or, or, you know, part, you know, bringing Kara back either from the dead or bringing her back as, you know, the new post crisis version. That's exactly what they're doing here. They're bringing this character back after, you know, all these years in a new post crisis version. And I mean, the biggest question is why, why would you do that? Because she had a wonderful send off. I mean, one of Supergirl's best stories she ever had is her death story, frankly. I mean, it's, it, it's a really good and, and you know, it's a touching story and she had a really good solid send off and they didn't need to, to meddle with that. Also, the big thing that bugs me in this story and it's repeated as, as like a mantra from Superman throughout the whole thing is where he keeps saying, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. All of a sudden out of nowhere, you've got Loeb, having Superman, you know, down in the dumps and feeling, you know, he's, oh, I'm so sad. I'm the only Krypton. Where the hell is this coming from? That was never a part of this character. Now all of a sudden it is. And why? Because it's going to fit this particular narrative of, oh, I'm not alone anymore. Now I have a, 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 you know, a baby cousin that's coming to join me. What? So again, it's, it's counter continuity, but it's also counter the character and again, this is another one of those things that just makes me nuts because is this not what we had both Crisis on Infinite Earths and Burns Reboot to, to establish? We put the guy back as being the top dog in the DC universe without all those barnacles, you know? They, they had scraped all that shit off of him. So no longer was it oh, yes, I'm the last son of Superman, and by the way, there's also the last daughter, the last dog, the last monkey, the last horse, the last, you know, this, that, and the other thing. 
he's back to being the sole survivor of the planet Krypton, which makes him a unique part, you know, a, a unique character. And then they go and they do this. And then not long after this is when you got that whole, the, you know, the stupid story where, like, you know, all those Kryptonians survive and come to Earth. Oh, I hated all that shit. And and this to me that this is where all that crap starts. And so I mean maybe it's not fair to dump all that on this one particular issue, but that's what I'm gonna do. Because this to me, this this really was this was the sign of the end times for me with, with you know, Superman at DC. And it just broke my heart because damn I love that character and I, I loved where things were going, but then Loeb comes in and just just Fs it all up. So yeah. I'm gonna think. Oh, I'm gonna say with with reviving all the uh, the Kryptonian connections, there's plenty of blame to go around, and I agree with you that right. it, it just dilutes it. Absolutely. I mean, they they reference it here. They don't come right out and name him. I don't think, but it is referenced here that you know not long before this story was published, they had brought crypto back. Now, I got nothing against crypto. Pre-crisis, I liked crypto. I liked the idea that Superman and, you know, when he was young, Superboy, had a, a pet dog that was actually Kryptonian. It was actually a super dog. How, how fun was that? How cool was that? But that's a completely different age of comics. It's a completely different type of thing. Now you're dealing with the post-crisis world that is, you know, in air quotes, you know, a little more serious, a little more... I don't want to say adult, but you know what I mean. Just a mm-hmm. little more up to date. And now you're going to bring back Crypto the Super Dog. And to me, all that does. the Super Monkey. Yeah, and all that does is give fuel to the people that are already DC detractors. You know, the ones that still think of DC Comics as being, you know, goofy and silly like the old Batman TV show or something. And they're going to look at it and go. You know, here it is, 2000, what year was this? Six, I think? Four. It's 2000, oh, 2004, and here Superman's got a super dog. And it just, I don't know, it accentuates the absurd, I think. And it, it just, it doesn't do them any favors. It's so. it, the super dog and the super horse and all the different super people plays to a very young audience. Yes. And, and I think <laughs> the problem is... As I mentioned earlier, you know we've we've gone through quite a few rants here, but the problem is your audience has aged as time has gone on, and part of the idea of crisis was to present a more mature product to the audience, to to bring it more in in line with a more sophisticated group of readers. So then right. to to and and I'm with you. I always I always liked the character of, of crypto. But I don't want it in this continuity because, in my opinion, it dumbs it down. It it plays yep. to a to a to a much much younger audience, and you know I'm fine with you producing stuff for a younger audience, but do that separately, or do it all, go whole hog. Say you know what we're not writing comics for for people you know middle aged men anymore. We're, we're writing comics for kids because that's the audience we feel like we want to. Uh, appeal to and then I'll just walk away it's fine you know but don't don't tell me it's for me and then write stuff that's there for little kids right so this is uh, this has effectively become a get off my lawn cast I think <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so you, did you give your overall rating on the book? I didn't, because that one's really that's the hardest one of all. Because you know, I I, I, I I'm had you know, I don't want to praise the art and then give the book an F. But that's what I'm tempted to do because I really, really don't like what was done here. You well, know? you know but what? I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you, and I'm going to say that I've mentioned on a few occasions that, in my opinion, uh, the rating system does not necessarily have to reflect the final grade being a sum of the grades that you gave to the individual things. The final right. grade is what is your overall feeling when you walked away from this one? So you, you could you could have a book where you say, you know what, I understand the artwork isn't so great, and I understand that the story is kind of infantile, but I just had a hell of a lot of fun reading it, so I'm giving the, the story a, a C and the artwork a D, but I'm giving the book an A because I loved it anyway. You know, you can right. do that. So you can, in theory, say, I love the artwork, I hate the story, I hated the story so much that it, it left a bad taste in my mouth and I'm giving it an F. I, I don't well, have any problem that, with that if that's where you want to go. Then that's what I'd have to do because I, I, re, I mean, granted, 2004 was not a horrible long time ago. I mean, it's 15 years ago, but I remember my reaction with this. And my reaction with it, I mean, I've never... Uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, um, not defaced, but you know what I mean. Um, um, destroyed. You know, I've never, I've never destroyed a comic in my life. But you, you probably remember, like after one more day came out, and there were those people on the internet that were like ripping it up or setting it on fire or you know those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of reaction I had to this. And a lot of the stuff that Loeb was doing towards, you know, towards the end before Infinite Crisis with Superman, especially that Superman 166 issue. God, I mean, I was just seeing red because I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? And that was my reaction with this was, you know, on so many levels, you know, you're you're ignoring continuity. You're going counter to continuity. You're pissing on the continuity. And then you're bringing back a character that doesn't need to come back and for what i mean that was the other thing is i mean was there actually somebody out there clamoring for kara zor-el to come back not that i remember so why was he doing it for no other reason than he wanted to do it and i think the reasons that he wanted to do it were selfish and petty and i think a lot of his work on superman was selfish and petty and uh and that's one of the the reasons that I, I just I have a real problem with his time and his take on the character is I, I think he was very self-serving for uh, for you know the wrong reasons selfishness and and just to be a vindictive prick and that's that's wrong you don't do that with something like this you know Superman's supposed to be better than that and bigger than that but I don't know that's my take on it. Yeah. I'd be very curious to see what other, you know, what others thought of it, you know, especially yeah. folks that are, you know, invested in in Superman, you know, as a character. This was a fairly popular story when it came out, so I'd be curious to hear what people say and if they agree with us, if they disagree with us, you know, and why. Uh, right. You know, I do respect dissenting opinions, and not as much as I respect the ones that agree with me, but but I do respect dissenting <laughs> opinions. So you know, anybody who's interested, you know, write in, let us know what you think. Uh, 
so that's our first book for the day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I said this was going to be a short episode, and I guess I unintentionally lied, but we're still only going to cover one book, because this one took us quite a while to get through. Um, so we'll be back next week, and we'll have... I'm not sure what we'll have for you, but we'll have something. We'll see you we'll then. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. So I was just like, ah, I just been and just and I just rebooted it and took a dump because <laughs> I was so pensive and tied up at that point. I was just like, I gotta go to the bathroom now. You uh, are you at all familiar with the concept of too much information? <laughs> no, why do you ask? No reason. <laughs>